I hope you'll take a Bible and turn uh, almost to the end of the New Testament to uh, the book of James. It's page uh, 1011 in these Bibles in the, in the pews uh, as we continue with James chapter 1, which we uh, started a few weeks ago. Begin reading in verse 12. Hear God's word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sin desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits, of his creatures. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Sam Storms has written that few things are more controversial among Christians than the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. When we come to such questions, is God truly sovereign over everything, including calamity like we just prayed for, and natural disasters, and death, or demons, or is, or is his sovereign control restricted just to things we typically regard as good, such as material blessing or family welfare or our personal comfort and good health. How you handle trials and difficulties that were addressed earlier in chapter 1 reveal what you believe about God. They reveal what you believe about whether God is sovereign in your trials, whether he is in control after the birth of our disabled son almost 23 years ago, I became very interested in reading about something I had not read much about, which was miraculous healing. And I began to read everything I could get my hands on, and it was usually quite disappointing because it came from, to me, very unbiblical positions. So when we would have speakers here as guests to speak at our missions conference or theological conferences or just guest preachers, especially some of them were quite astute, and they were seminary professors and authors and people like that. Usually in a personal conversation before the weekend was over, I would ask, let me ask you, do you have anything to recommend by way of written material, book or articles, that deal with miraculous healing from a Reformed perspective, Reform being the, the theology that came out of the Reformation? And Speaker after speaker said, I really don't. Finally, I got two pretty good answers. One excellent, and one was very insightful. When John Piper was here, uh, he, at our breakfast table, he said, I don't really have anything to recommend, but here's what you're going to find. Everything you read will be divided into two camps. There'll be those who make God in control, and then others will say, we are in control. It's our faith, how we pray, 
Do we trust God enough, or is God sovereign in this? Thankfully, Frank Barker told me of a book called Miraculous Healing that you've heard me mention from this pulpit that was excellent and still is to me the the book on the subject. Anyway, what we when we go through trials, we begin to think about is God in control? Is God really in control, especially when those trials are difficult? So far in James in chapter 1 if you've not been with us, we saw the first truth is that God is sovereign in our trials, and as a result, we can experience joy in them, not happiness, not necessarily the feeling of joy, but he says we can rejoice in them knowing, knowing that God is using them to produce discipline and steadfastness in our life. And the ultimate outcome is perfection or Christian maturity and the crown of life. Every trial, though, now here's the bad news, and this is where we're going with these next verses that we read, beginning in verse 13. Trials bring with them, typically, temptations. They bring with them temptations to sin. When you face a financial trial, you may say, Oh, Lord, I know you brought this into my life. You're going to use this to build steadfastness. At the same time, you may be tempted to doubt God's provision for you. When someone you love dies... You may sense God's presence, but at the same time, you're tempted to doubt God's love. When you experience some kind of unjust suffering that, that you were victimized by another person, you may be tempted to doubt whether God truly is a God of justice. And, and in no time, you may conclude, well, if the test or trial is from God, then the temptation is from God. And so James anticipates that's where you and I will go in our thinking. God may test us, but he does not and cannot tempt us. Let me explain the difference. When you read the Bible, the word for test and tempt are often used interchangeably. For example, we go to the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22, and it starts by saying, after these things God tested, and the King James, I believe, says tempted Abraham. And that begins the whole episode about taking his son up on to the mountain to sacrifice him. We might read that and say, wait a minute, I thought James says God doesn't tempt anyone. Then we go over to the Gospels and we see Jesus, right before calling his disciples and beginning his public, well, before beginning his public ministry, later calling his disciples, it said in Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or to be tested by the devil. Well, which is right and which is wrong? How can James say God does not tempt anyone when right here it, is, it uses these words like that? Well, here's the difference. God tests us to make us stand. The evil one tempts us to make us fall. Imagine going into a gymnasium where there are some weights, a weight room, and there's a coach there. He says, look, I'm here to help you work out. I'm going to be your trainer. I'm going to help you get stronger. And uh, we're going to work on your arms and your back and your, your legs and so forth. And so I want you to take here, we're going to start real light. And over the weeks, the six, eight, ten weeks, you're going to see some results. You're going to feel better. You're going to feel stronger. But we're going to go be very careful now not to give you more than you can lift so that you don't injure yourself. That's testing to help you stand, to make you stronger. 
And here's another coach in the same, here's another trainer in the same gym and says, here, come over here. How much can you lift? Well, I can lift 100 pounds. Okay, here, I put 400 pounds on here. You can do it. And you try to lift that and you injure yourself. And that trainer is happy about it. Same words, same tool, weights, totally different intention. When the Bible talks about God testing or tempting us, it's not to tempt us to sin. It's to test us to show how strong we are and to make us stronger. The evil one and our own hearts tempt us to disobey God. And that's where James is going with this. So he says that the source of temptation, beginning in verse 13, is not God. Because God is not tempted by evil and God cannot tempt anyone to evil. God is perfectly sinless. Everything in him resists sin. Evil is inherently foreign to him. God is aware of sin. God is aware of evil, but he's unaffected. He's untainted by it, you can say. In no way can God be blamed for temptation and sin. So who is responsible for it? Well, James goes on. He says, but each one, he holds up a mirror to us, and says each one is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. So God is perfectly sinless. And after telling us that God does not tempt us, he doesn't immediately start talking about Satan tempting us. He deals with that in chapter 4 of James. But right here in this passage, he's saying we are responsible. It's your heart. It doesn't mean that Satan is not involved, but this passage does not focus on that type of spiritual warfare. He's talking about our own hearts. We, we of course, want to put the blame on others. We want to find fault with our, maybe our upbringing or our friends or our family or our environment or our government or our condition or anything else we can think of. This doesn't mean that those things are not influential or that they have no consequences. But the teaching of Scripture is clear. The fault of my sin lies with me. There's a problem which lies at the core of who I am and who you are, and the Bible calls it the heart. You know the old saying, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The Bible uses heart, not talking about that which pumps blood in your body, but the seat of your emotions, the essence of who you are. And it's, we're not given very positive descriptions of that in the Bible. Jesus in Matthew 15 said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. In Jeremiah the prophet, he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you could somehow thought's very scary to me, but if you could plug up a computer to my brain and have a transcript of all of my thoughts from the past 24 hours, print it out where you could read them, you would want me locked away for the rest of my life. And you would tell all your family, don't go near that person. And you know what? We'd feel the same way about you if we had that transcript. Where does that come from? Well, he's saying it comes from the heart. The heart produces these things. This past week, many, uh, many of us who uh, are Christians have been affected by the, the renunciation of the Christian faith by Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris, for many years, pastored Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. It's a, it's a megachurch. But his name kind of became known in Christian circles 
about 20 years ago when he authored a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And in it, he argued for, uh, against the dating system we have in America and more for courtship. And especially among the homeschooling community, that book, and in, in Christian schools, became a bestseller and known all over. Well, within the past 10 days or so, Joshua Harris announced on social media publicly that he and his wife Shannon are divorcing and he no longer considers himself a Christian and he regrets having taught that marriage is to be only between a man and a woman. Uh, there's loads of speculation that's been in print by Albert Moeller and others about this and, and that it's just that, speculation as to what has gone on, what has happened leading up to this. I greatly appreciated, most of all, the article by Kevin DeYoung and others, and he writes, I want, here's a couple of sentences, he said, we've known Josh for almost 15 years, we've been with his family, we've been in his home, we've been in his church. And he said, we are holding out hope that the faith we saw in him and heard from him was not spurious. It would give us great joy to see our friend return to the gospel he proclaimed, the Bible he affirmed, and the Jesus he held out to others. Now, here's my point, and it's not about Joshua Harris. If you think for a moment that your pastors and elders and deacons are somehow above such actions, you are wrong. Because we all have sinful hearts, and they will lead us in a direction, if we are not careful, if we are not vigilant, that will be destructive for everybody around us. I would add, if you think somehow that you are so mature or knowledgeable or so far along in the Christian faith that you are above any sin, you are not. Do we hope for that? Of course not. When we rely on the Holy Spirit and on the power of God. I know that this congregation's favorite doxology, not doxology, benediction. John, you forgot the Lord's Prayer. I can't read the scripture, and now I'm forgetting everything. This this staff is getting old, folks. I don't know. Uh, your favorite benediction is Jude 1. Well, there's only one chapter. It's Jude 24. That starts off, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And we hear that, and it sounds so sweet. What is he saying? It's up to God to keep us from doing what our hearts would lead us to do, which is to sin, and sin terribly. So to him who is able, he is able to keep us from that. But if he doesn't keep us from that, we are in trouble based on our own hearts. Well, what's the anatomy of sin? He goes on in verses 14 and 15. He says it doesn't just happen out of the blue. Um, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So James says, let's take a look at how, the, how it looks. Uh, at, at how sin operates. Uh, the temptation doesn't just happen like lightning on a clear day. There's, there's the kindling of a fire. We are, we are lured. We are enticed. You know, we see that with the temptation of so, so clear in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve. And there was first the deception. Has God said, you shall not eat from this tree? You will surely die. Uh, there's, so there's initial deception. Then there's the desire. Oh, it looks good. It looks good to the eyes. 
And one commentator said he's using the language of, of like a fish being caught by a hook. Now, I grew up fishing in ponds and in a, the Coosa River in Alabama. And even in Alabama, we knew that you can't catch a fish with a bare hook. I mean, fish are not that, well, I guess some fish are smarter than others. But we knew that much. You need a bait on there. You need something to make it attractive. Some live bait or some lure that looks like a bait. You don't put something on there that a fish doesn't want. You don't put a stick on a hook. Uh, you don't put a rock on a hook. Uh, well, you could, but you won't catch anything. You want to put something that will deceive that fish. And here he says sin goes from deception, desire, it's progressive, disobedience, and ultimately death. In fact, it makes it sound like childbirth. The first there's when lust has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin has been accomplished, when it grows up, it brings forth death. That's the grandchild is death. So he says, don't blame God with that. So brother or sister, if you, and only you know about this probably, and God, whatever sin you are flirting with, whatever deception you are buying into or desires you are fulfilling, run from them. They will kill you. In verses 16 and 18, let's get to some good news. And that's, what do we do about it? And once again, it becomes what's our focus, and our focus should be on God, and we should think about God. In the midst of temptation, when we are bewildered and feel deceived and we're inclined to be dragged away and enticed by our sinful hearts, verse 17 says, Remember that God, the God of your salvation, is faithful, and in him there's no variation or shadow cast by turning. Remember that God is good. His goodness is unchanging, it says here. He is always good. He does not go through mood swings like some of us. You get a three-hour sleep one night. The next day, you're grouchy, or, or you don't talk, or you're just kind of angry, a, a low-level irritation with, with people, or or something happens and you carry that with you for days and it just affects everything. God doesn't do that. God doesn't have changing moods. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is perfect. He is ultimate. He is wonderfully good in every way. And His goodness is undeserved. It says in verse 18 that God chose to give us birth through the message of His Word, His truth. He chose to do that. The message of Christ is that anything good in you is because of God's grace that he has given to you. God is the source of every good and perfect thing. That is what faith relies on at every level. Do you notice how quick we are to, to blame God when things are hard? But when things go well, we don't even think about him? Are you, you feel pretty good today? That is a gift from God. Things gone well for you this week, that is a gift from God. You, do you, are you here with a spouse you love? That is a gift from God. You have healthy children, that is a gift from God. And he wants us to remember that. Also, his goodness is unending. It doesn't come to an end. I'm getting ready to come to the Lord's table, so I'm going to conclude with this one last thought. I want to recommend a book to you. Some of you have already read this. It's called Confronting Christianity, subtitled 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. It's written by Rebecca McLaughlin, 
And uh, I, I saw this about three months ago, and when I look on and see an endorsement by people like John Lennox, who teaches at the at University of Oxford, or Peter Williams, uh, I, I know I, I want to read this book. So uh, I, I got this, and I, I read other, other endorsements about it. And here are the questions that she uh, addresses, and, and they're very current. Aren't we better off without religion? Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? How can you say there's only one true faith? Doesn't religion hinder morality? Doesn't religion cause violence? How can you take the Bible literally? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? How could a loving God send people to hell? Anyway, oh, I... I commend this to you. But I was reading, and this is a trite story in light of those titles, uh, those questions. And here's what she said about something that happened to her one day. The last time I had my hair cut, my stylist had a tattoo on her right arm. And it read, if you can't handle my worst, you don't deserve my best. If you can't handle my worst, you don't deserve my best. And then the author says these words stuck in my mind. Ultimately, they express a desire to be known and loved, but as we invite people in, we must navigate a minefield. Dig in some places in my heart, and you will find rich soil that, that will help you know me better and perhaps love me more. But scratch on other areas of that soil, and your positive view of who I am will explode in your face. We all manage self-disclosure. Here's what I want to say to you. When we come to the Lord's table, or when we read that about how God is, we are the first fruits with the word of his truth, God has taken our worst and gives us his best. And that's what Paul meant in Romans when he said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, all of us here going through various trials, some would be life-changing, some are just for a day or two. And mixed in there are temptations. We pray that we would think of your goodness, that we would look to you, that we'd recognize that you don't change, uh, and recognize and be vigilant with our own hearts and how they would lead us astray. For there is a way that seems right to man, but the way thereof are the ways of death. Thank you for the Lord Jesus that he took our worst upon him on the cross, that he died in our place, that he paid the penalty that was due, the death, the wages of our sin. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.